Momentum Volleyball is the online Canadian hub for volleyball storytelling, reporting, and event coverage, allowing content creators to connect with fans, coaches, and players. Momentum is the hub for athletes, coaches, and fans to find free and paid volleyball content, and we are proud to be the voice of Canadian volleyball around the world. Head to MomentumVolleyball.ca to subscribe for free and get access to exclusive content and all your Canadian volleyball updates. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Really excited for today's guest. She made her debut on Sharp Cuts, so we're hoping she can match the same energy and intensity she brought to that show, and you can check that out in our archives. So today's guest played at the University of Waterloo. She went on to the University of Alberta, where she studied her master's in coaching. She coached in the OCAA for Niagara College and in the OUA as an assistant with Queen's. She's now with the Guelph Griffins and will be an assistant coach for Team Ontario at the Canada Games upcoming. Please welcome to the show, Natasha Spalling. Tash, thanks for doing this. Awesome. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be on this podcast. Great. <laughs> so we, we, our fans got to listen to you a little bit on Sharp Cuts, but this is a little bit more bio. So let's fill them in a little bit. So you grew up in that Drayton community area, and I'm sure there was access to a lot of different sports. So what were you doing as a kid before you got into volleyball? Yeah, I mean, I think access to a lot of different sports is um, a very friendly and nice way to put it. In Drayton, there's not too much going on. So I played kitty kicker soccer for about one year and then completely lost interest because I'm terrible at soccer. And then I also figure skated for one year as well. And then I'm pretty sure when I went to like the final carnival, you know how figure skaters have carnivals. I didn't get to be the center pinwheel, so I was ticked about that. Didn't go back to figure skating. <laughs> and then, um, yeah, I mean, after that, I played pretty much everything growing up. I like I loved basketball. Um, that was one of my first loves, and uh, fastball too. So I played fastball for like, uh, or fast pitch for like 10, 11 years, and I played for the Palmerston Marlins, which is. Um, like a travel baseball team kind of in the area. And I actually, I, I had to pick eventually when I was in grade 10 between baseball because I played on so many, I played on like three baseball teams and I played on a couple different volleyball teams and I was a swimmer too. And then I, I ended up getting a, I fractured my back just because like, you know, you're tall and awkward and have no muscle at that age. And so I was going to like, three or four practices a day and it hurt my back. So my parents said around kind of great then, okay, like you have to pick what you want to do. Um, so I remember that being a really hard decision to pick volleyball um, because I might have said this on sharp cuts, but like I didn't even like volleyball in elementary <laughs> school. I thought it was the worst sport. I was like, oh, these girls just wear short spandex and like these weird things on their knees and like, I'm not about that. I'm a basketball player and I play fast pitch and I'm a catcher. It's like I got so much equipment on. And I remember showing up to volleyball tryouts for the Preds, the very first year the Preds were invented. And I had like those puffy white knee pads, you know, the ones that you get from like, I don't even know if you can buy them anymore. Puffy white knee pads and basketball shoes and like basketball shorts. I really wanted everyone there to know that I was a basketball player, not a volleyball player. <laughs> and I was terrible, but made the team for sure because I was six foot tall. <laughs> and then ended up just like falling in love with it. I hated that I was worse than everybody else. 
And then once you can actually play volleyball, it is the most fun. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of like how I got into, into playing and yeah, sports wise. I played badminton in high school, went to Quassa, took like some doubles, badminton, mixed doubles. We were pretty good. Um, I don't know. I think that was pretty much it. Contact sports weren't really my thing. So like, Rugby, a lot of my friends played rugby, not for me. I think it's very cool, but I think I'm way too big of a win to play that. I had two brothers that like constantly beat me up when I was little, so I was just not really about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's great to hear. And I'm glad you mentioned your brothers there because I'm just imagining how busy your parents are because uh, one of my college roommates was was great buddies with your brother, Nick, and we got to watch him when the Kitchener Rangers would come to town and stuff like that. So, I mean, you got... Two brothers who were athletes, one that played professional hockey. So I'm just thinking your parents are just trucking you guys all over the province to play all your, the sports you guys are doing. Yeah, honestly, looking back, I don't know how they did it. Like <laughs> most days, I struggle to like get myself places. And like I just have to take care of one knee and I feel like at the end of the week, I'm pooped. Um, but I don't, I don't know how they did it because Drayton is like an hour away from everywhere you need to be so like when i play volleyball i played for the Preds, but the Preds are like, at least an hour like i went to forest heights for a lot of practices and so we're driving an equivalent amount of time that we're practicing right it's like an hour there an hour back you're for an hour and a half or two hour practice and yeah like with, with my brothers they're practicing every day with triple a hockey because like they played in Drayton for a while, but then it only goes up to a certain level, right? Small town, there's less than 2,000 people that live there. So in order to kind of pursue sports, my parents, and like, again, I don't even know why they did this. I think it's a big part because my mom is the most wonderful, kind, selfless woman ever. And my dad, when he was younger, he loved hockey and sports so much that his his parents didn't drive him um his parents were farmers and like really hard workers but they they couldn't necessarily afford to put him in sport and so he hitched he hitched hiked to hockey every single hockey practice until he got a car um and like that is really incredible um and so i'm sure that a big that played a big part for he and my mom putting us in sports and dedicating that time is because that was such a big value to him. And my parents are just an incredible people. Like they always told us we can do whatever we want to do, but we have to do it with like everything that we have. So because it was such an effort for us to get to a practice or even to get to tryouts, it was like, if we're doing this, you are doing this full on. There is no quitting. There's no like 50% effort. Like you are going and you are trying your best. And if you hate it after a year, that's fine. But like you have to invest yourself in this. And so that was a pretty, that's always been like a pretty big part. I think of all of my siblings lives and my sister too was really athletic growing up and she played hockey and baseball and kind of all of the sports. Too, and then she went on to, to college and became a dental hygienist after. And I think like with four kids, I have no idea how you can raise four kids, much less four kids that are all in sports. It's incredible. Yeah. 
so they must be just be tired all the time. Oh, for sure. It sounds like <laughs> it. No, it's great to hear about the work ethic and everything that was passed on to you. And it was great to hear about earlier that once your skills got up, you thought volleyball was just the most fun thing ever. So I'm curious, when did post-secondary become a thing? Because I think you, you must have started a little bit later than maybe kids are starting playing today, right? So when did you kind of learn that post-secondary was an option for you to compete? And, and who kind of initiated? Did you start talking to coaches or did they approach you? Good question. Um, yeah, so I guess... I don't know. I feel like most of my time in volleyball, I just kind of was either tricked or like fell into it a little <laughs> bit. Like when I first started, I was for sure tricked because I got sent to this camp in grade eight where my future high, high school coaches were. And then at the end of the camp, they said, okay, everybody put your name on this list if you want to be called for trial. And I like didn't put my name on the list because I didn't want to go to tryouts. <laughs> and uh, Jeff Short and Dave Lickertois, those are the coaches at Norwell District Secondary School. They um, they held me back after everybody left. And I said, Natasha, we really think you should put your name on the list. And I said, No thanks. Like I'm gonna go play club basketball. Pass. And then they're like, No, no, just like put your name on the list. It's just for a phone call. You don't have to come to trial. And then I was like, oh, okay, sure, fine, whatever. Like, I just want to go home. I just spent a week at volleyball. I'm brutal at volleyball. Like, this wasn't a very fun. So I did it. And then I'm pretty sure they called and convinced my mom to bring me to tryouts. And then from there, really, I, I think, like, the, the two main people that helped me realize, like, that initiated me into volleyball would have been, like, Steve Dom and Lisa Lofton. Those are my first club coaches. Um, it's cool because I actually coach with Lisa now with Team Ontario and stuff, so that's really neat. And they kind of made me fall in love with it, and they made me a lot better. And then I think it was the athletes on my team that made me aware of, like, you can pursue volleyball post-secondary level because they were all like, putting videos together and talking about where they wanted to go to school almost at the time I started, kind of like a year after I started, they had kind of started talking about that and they had plans for where they wanted to go. And so I was kind of like, oh, okay, like this is an option, neat. Like I can pursue this task just playing for the Predators. That's awesome. And then I would say another person that played a really big role and it was Gabby Yost. Um, so she was the coach at Waterloo and she recruited me there. And Gabby, like... I think that this was the awesome part about Gabby is like she really saw something in people and she would put in the effort with you and work with you as long as you were willing to work really hard with her. Right. And so like she, I think she gave me like private lessons for free. Like she was so good to me. She really, really helped me because I needed it. Like I, I did start volleyball later than a lot of people. I, I think it was either 15, I think it was around 15U or 16U when I started. And so Gabby like really helped me get caught up technically. And I don't think I ever really appreciated what she did until when I was coaching at Queen's, there was this one gal and she made the team as a walk-on. And I was talking to her a little bit and she made the comment that she didn't start playing until later. And so some of the basic skills, like she just didn't know, like she kind of got started at advanced. 
And so all of the basic technical skills she didn't have. And I think like when I was talking to her about that, it made me think of Gabby because Gabby helped me with all of that stuff, like all of that really basic technical stuff. And she took the time to train and help me get better. And that is for sure why I ended up ultimately choosing Waterloo. That was a really big reason. I had a really great relationship with her. Um, and she she helped me so much, um, which is really cool. So that's kind of what, what happened there. And then the like actual process of it, I would go to a lot of camps in the summer because, again, I was just trying to get as good as I could, and I felt so behind. And so I would go to these camps. And I remember there was one, it was kind of like Campbellville, I think, and, like, I remember Dustin Reed was there, Gabby was there, Tim was there. It's a couple of different coaches. It's like five year camp and there's five different coaches. And then I actually at that point in time like reached out to them and just said, like, hey, thanks so much. This is great. Like I learned a ton in this day because I genuinely did, because I'm from Drayton. <laughs> I've never seen you or heard of me before. Um, and then at that point in time, coaches would like respond and then the recruitment process kind of started from there. Um, but that's kind of, kind of how I like fell into, for lack of a better word, recruitment. So I, I gotta know, did you ever feel like you at, like caught up to the level because you, you were eventually named captain before you left Waterloo, you were winning some individual yeah. awards. So yeah. did you ever feel like you belonged or maybe was it like this, this work ethic that you had that helped like pay off into like some leadership stuff, get you some individual awards? Like, do you ever lose that, that sense of like, I'm behind and I need to work hard? Or did you ever feel like, you know, by fourth or fifth year, like I belong here now? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I felt like I had caught up when I was in 18U, like I did feel like, okay, I've, I've covered some pretty good ground here. And I felt like at that point in time, I, I trusted my skills more than I started. So I would say after like three years, and then I remember going into Waterloo and just being like, not knowing any better, like, honestly, just not understanding university sport and like how much older everybody else was. So it was a big part of me just being naive. I was like, okay, well, I want to play and I want to start. So I'm going to work as hard as I possibly can and try to start. And like, I didn't in my mind understand that that was a really hard thing to do. I was just like, okay, I'm just going to do that. And it was cool. Like I got to play in my very first ever university game. Like it was awesome. And it, it ended up working pretty well, which is good. But yeah, I don't know that I ever felt that I was a hundred percent caught up. I just always remember feeling like, man, this is hard and there is so much to learn. And like, I got to get better in a really good way. <laughs> Um, and I think that's part of what I love about volleyball and what I really like about coaching. Like, I think that's what draws me to it too is I don't think that anyone is ever really the best. Like, I don't think that there is just one piece. And so that's so intriguing. It's like you're constantly just working to get better. And I think that's really fun. Yeah, let, let's jump to the coaching thing because there is a lot to cover. Now, I'm curious because we did talk about this a little bit on Sharp Cuts, but uh, like I've pursued a, a a career in coaching, but I can't remember like 
this definitely wasn't something I was discussing with like high school and careers or like with a guidance counselor. Like I didn't think it was a career. So I'm curious when you're in university, when did you learn that like coaching could be a job and that you could actually like study your master's in it? Because like, I, I imagine you were similar to me, like when you're in grade 12 and they're like, what are your goals? What do you want to pursue that you didn't write down volleyball coach thinking you could make a living doing that? No, absolutely not. So for anyone that's heard this story before, you can fast forward like 30 <laughs> seconds. I, so yeah, 100%. I went into university. So I, my degree is in kinesiology and uh, I was super interested in maybe being a doctor as most people in kin are or a physio or athletic therapist or something in healthcare because, you know, you're interested in the way that bodies move and injuries and like, helping people get better. Like, all that stuff is, is really cool. And I think when you're an athlete, just super intriguing, you're naturally drawn to that. I remember kinesiology being uh, like one of my favorite courses in, in high school. And so that was kind of like a natural progression for me. And then, uh, yeah, obviously in my time at Waterloo, I had uh, three coaches over five years. And so there's a lot of transition, a lot of different, like a lot of different coaching styles. Um, I learned a lot from every single one of them as an athlete, but I learned a lot about them um, as leaders, like a lot. And I think that it threw me like, you made a comment before about like, you know, did your hard work kind of put you in the leadership position? And I think that like maybe partly, but I think also like what happens to teams when they go through transition is you cling to what's safe and you cling to what's stable and what's consistent. And what was the most consistent was like each other. Right. And so I think like, as a part of that that leadership role that I kind of grew into, it was just like I was there for that period of time for that like really really tough transition for the team. So I think that's kind of what what pushed me into that type of realm. But then what really launched me into coaching was uh, Christine Stapleton. The she was the associate director at Waterloo, I believe, at the time. Anyway, she. She and Chris Lawson were in the hiring for a new coach. So um, Luke Snyder was the interim coach for, um, for one year, which is great. He stepped in like he was really selfless, pretty incredible because he had a full time job and two kids. So he was <laughs> and stepped in last minute. Uh, so it was pretty incredible of him. And so Christine and Chris Lawson asked me if I wanted to be on the interview committee for the the new type coach. And so I said, sure. And it was just the three of us, which was so neat for me. So I got to sit in on every single interview. I got to go through resumes. I got to ask questions. It was really neat. And so in between all of the interviews, I would just sit there with Christine and Chris and talk about sport and coaching and what I wanted to see as an athlete and what I really hoped for for the program. And at one point in time, Christine said, Natasha, would you want to be a coach? And I said, oh, for sure. Like I coach right now, but that's not a real job. Like <laughs> I'll coach club or I'll coach a high school team. Or like at that point in time, I was coaching Drayton Heights, grade seven and eight boys, volleyball, 
champions, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and so I was like, oh, coach, but that's, that's not a real job. I'm going to go be something else. And then she said, no, no, it is. Like, you can be a coach. And I just happened to be living in Alberta that summer with my sister. Uh, she lived in Calgary for like eight years. And Christine Stapleton said, you have to meet Lori Eisler. Like, she is an absolute rock star of a human being and a coach. Like, she's got kids. She's married to a coach. She's won, like, six back-to-back national championships. She's been coaching for longer than you've been alive. Like, she's awesome. And so I like, had never even heard of Lori at this point in time, which is probably, like, looking back, like, I should have just known more about volleyball. <laughs> but I didn't anyway. And so I remember the day and I still have a picture of myself. My sister took a picture of me outside of the Savile center before I went in for my little like interview with Lori to ask her questions about this masters of coaching program. And Lori kind of sat me down and she said, okay, like, who are you? (laughs) And told her a bit about myself and she's like, okay, well, like, this program isn't for everybody. Coaching is really hard. It's not a normal lifestyle. It's not a normal career path. And like, I can't guarantee you anything, but you know, if you're, if you're interested in like helping to develop people and wanting to win and working as hard as you possibly can, then like, then maybe coaching is for you. But like, obviously I can't tell you either way. So I was like, okay. Well, thanks. Feeling inspired. <laughs> and uh, so then I, I left and I actually genuinely was feeling really inspired. I was like, that's something I can buy into for the rest of my life. Like you're asking me to do something where I work really hard all of the time to try to help people and to try to win. And it's something I love. Like, Yep, I'm in. Like, I have no problem with that. So I emailed her, I think, maybe a month later. And I was like, I'm in. I want to do this. Like, how do I do it? And she said, okay, well, like, you can apply to your master's of coaching. Um, and at that point in time, I still had, like, a relatively good knee. And so I was hoping to maybe play for a little bit longer. Um, and she said, like, play as long as you can and then come coach, like, play as long as you possibly can, play until you're done because you're never going to get that back. And then come, then apply and coach. And then uh, I ended up carrying my ACL uh, at the end of my fourth year again. And I emailed her that summer and I was like, I'm really in now. <laughs> like, I, there's no way, like, I, I, I want to go into this. This is the direction I want to go. And so yeah, then I, I applied and she was like, it's okay if you don't get in the first time. Like, you can apply again. Usually, you know, it might take a couple rounds. And I was super lucky. Like, I got a, I got an email in April and it like changed my whole life for coaching. Um, cause I, re- I also remember this is pretty funny too. I, I wonder if she even remembers this, but. It was that exact day. I think I was supposed to go talk to Rich about being his assistant coach and kind of like being a more formal assistant at Waterloo moving forward. And um, 
we had to postpone the meeting for some reason. And because I didn't, I didn't think I was getting into Alberta and I think I kind of told them that and like, okay, but they're really not told. How do you think I should do that? And then I remember that day I got the email being like, congratulations, you've been accepted. And I was like, holy smokes. Like, this is wild. I'm, it was crazy too because like I'm from Drayton. I went to school at Waterloo and so it was a big decision. Like, this, that was far for me. I didn't know anybody, and coaching is a bit of a weird thing to do. Like where I come from, people are not coaches, so there was no real example of how to be a professional coach in Drayton, shockingly. <laughs> and uh, so it was a bit, uh, it was a bit odd, but yeah, I I thought about it a little bit. I talked about it with my sister. She was who helps me make 100% of my decisions. And um, I just took it, just felt like the right thing to do. So that's what kind of like launched me into coaching. Yeah, that, that's great. And I had forgot about Luke there, Waterloo, because I knew you played for Gabby and Richard. I forgot Luke filled in there, but I'm curious. I think sometimes athletes, in sport, I think it's natural for athletes to transfer to coaches, but sometimes you don't really know what you don't know. And I'm curious when you finally got a chance to work with Lori as a coach instead of like a leader on the team and a player, is there anything that stood out in your mind as like a light bulb effect? You're like, oh, that's why we do this or that's why planning is done this way. Like I think, like I said, sometimes athletes think like just because you play at a high level that you can coach at a high level, but there's so many details and stuff going on behind the scenes that uh, I'm curious, did anything kind of like light you up the first time you were like helping Lori out at U of A? Yeah. Um, everything. <laughs> like, honestly, I didn't know anything. Like, looking back now, like, Luke, Gabby, Rich, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Like, <laughs> if I knew, if I could go back and just, like, understand and have a bigger perspective, and I think it's hard, like, that's almost an impossible thing to do when you're, when you're growing up and yeah, you don't know what you don't know when you're trying to understand, figure, figure things out. But just like, I remember being introduced to coaching and I remember one of the first things that I felt and I saw at Alberta was like, just the level of care for everything. And I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, these coaches must have been exhausted. Like, I get why you care so much if a drill isn't going well. Like I remember at Waterloo, we would try to do this drill called drill to 15. And it's a very simple concept. Guaranteed most coaches have done this before. But basically, you're just trying to keep the ball going back and forth across the net 15 times. And you're jumping and attacking. You have like five people on one side, five people on the other side. Every time the ball goes over the net, you rotate. I'm like, I remember trying to do that drill at Waterloo for hours, like hours and hours and practices and practices. And I remember Gabby being so frustrated that we couldn't do it because it's such a simple drill. And now I'm like, oh my gosh, I, I get it. I get why this was so frustrating and I get why this stuff is important. And like, so I remember just the level of care and intention into everything. And then the second part, I think, is just, like, the level of preparation that goes into matches. 
I did not understand how much effort that was for coaches before. And I think that's something that I like, there wasn't quite as much when I was an athlete, but there was enough. And that's something I for sure took for granted and should have paid way more attention to was just like the level of time and hours that they are using to prep, to give you information to win because they can't play. <laughs> like it's, it's kind of a funny concept to think about, but as coaches, like we're just trying so hard to teach athletes something. And in my head, I always just felt like, okay, you're just telling me this, like, all right, I'll try to apply it. Like, and I, I don't know, like I, I could have done a better job for sure as an athlete, like really trying to fit and learn because those coaches put so much time into it. So I think those are like two big eye openers right away that were like, okay, coaches do a lot. <laughs> definitely, definitely. I'm wondering if you had the same effect in the classroom as well. Like, uh, did, did anything really catch your attention, whether it was, I don't know, seasonal planning or motor learning or just general biomechanics because you're like a kin student? Was there like, because I think that's great about the Masters of Coaching is you're getting practical experience with Lori and the squad, but then you're also yeah. in the classroom learning like a bunch of like pretty advanced theory, right? So well, was there any theory that you're like, man, this doesn't even feel like tough to study for? I'm actually super interested in this. Um, I would say most things like there's this weird thing about coaching since I've been in it where I just, it felt so natural. Like everything has just fallen into place so well. And I used to like school, but I loved my masters. I would say the the biggest, like one of the best courses I think for sure was a course called coaching knowledges. And it was run by the head of the, the master's coaching program. And his name is Jim Dennison. He's a really neat person because he's originally like a track guy and a running guy. And he just thinks about sport. He's also a professor and he's brilliant. And he, he just thinks about sport in different ways. So instead of thinking about sport in the traditional way, ways we do, like, biomechanics and physics and like the hard sciences, the physiology of it. He thinks about sport and like how, how our environment and our social systems affect us as athletes and us as coaches. And so he would talk about like, okay, why do you, why do you use a whistle when you coach? Do you need to use a whistle? Why do you use a whistle? Kind of a strange thing. Or like the biggest impact I think that this has ever had on me was we did this activity um, where we asked us to analyze a part of part of our practice where we analyzed the warm-up. And traditionally, I used to just do the warm-up where like everybody would line up on <clears throat> the baseline, I'll still do this actually. Everyone lines up on the baseline and you all do the exact same set of stretches. And everybody does that and we do the same thing every single time. And that's that. And he was like, Well, why would you do that? Well, I don't know. 
Because that's what everybody does. <laughs> like, I don't know. Because that's what the people do <laughs> that I'm learning from. And so basically, like, we would analyze things and talk about things. And we would link sport and the way that we train in sport back to, like, the Industrial Revolution and the invention of, um, oh, my gosh, what's that thing called? The assembly line. And how everything had to be uniform, right? And the whistle started work and the whistle ended work. And we had to produce as much as possible. And the quality maybe went down, but we produced a lot. And so it made me think like, oh, that's very interesting. And we also analyzed the um, tradition of the coach being the expert. Like coaches sometimes feel like they need to know everything, right? So if an athlete comes and asks you a question, sometimes we don't want athletes to come ask us questions because we just want them to do what we say. Or if athletes come and ask us questions and we don't know the answer, it means we're a bad coach. But instead of thinking like that, he kind of takes the perspective of, well, what if that just makes you better? What if that just makes that athlete better? What if that's an opportunity for you both to grow in sport and to think about something and do something better. And so we had these really cool projects where we would do things with purpose in our training environment. So for warm up, it's risky, but you can just say to a group of 14 year olds, okay, I want you, you have 10 minutes, do a dynamic warm up. If you have questions about how to warm up, come ask. And I'll try to figure out how we can like, make a stretch to warm up that part of your body or if something's feeling stiff or sore. And that creates an opportunity to learn. So the tough part about that is, this is getting a bit nerdy, but I find it really cool. But the tough part about it is we're so bound by time, right? Like, I think usually I'll present these ideas to people and they'll just tell me, like, that's great, Natasha, but I've only got... 50 minutes in the gym tonight. So we have to be super efficient with our time. And it's hard because these concepts are really important and I think that they give autonomy to athletes and you can really empower your athletes. But that does take up a lot of time and sometimes you move a little bit slower as a coach. So that is definitely one of the coolest classes I've ever been a part of because it challenged me to be a better critical thinker, to be way more critical of myself um, as a coach and to understand that being critical does not mean that you are bad. It just means that you're analyzing yourself with purpose for the betterment of you and your athlete. So that was for sure the coolest class I've ever been in. I thought it was really neat. Yeah, no, that, that definitely sounds great. I'm curious, what does autonomy look like in your gym? And the reason I ask that is because there's there's a ton of coaching theory, but this is one where I think coaches can definitely eat it in a hurry if they're not careful. Like if you just say to your 14U team, all right, you guys got 10 minutes, go warm up versus I like how you described it as like you need to do a dynamic and you need to do this. But like if you choose these, this, this and this, then it's different, right? Where I think sometimes people hear autonomy and you just say, what do you guys want to do today versus 
Uh, we had John Mayer on the show from Coach Your Brain Zone, and he's like, autonomy isn't what do you want to do? He's like, you can frame it as like, Natasha, we're going to work on serving today in this drill. Do you want to serve six balls in a row or do you want to serve eight balls in a row? And even that is like a way of giving the athlete autonomy without saying, hey, hey Natasha, uh, what, what are we doing at practice tonight? Like there's still some guidelines and some structure and you can still plan long term, right? So uh, I'm curious, what does that look like in your dream? And like, have you ever had to kind of rethink the way you were doing it where like you have this awesome theory and you try it and you're like, wow, that really didn't work the way I thought it would. Oh, for sure. I have tried that exact warm-up scenario with a group of 14-year-olds. Went terribly. Like, just awful. They were done after a minute, and they were just, like, standing there awkwardly because many 14-year-olds are very shy and don't want to ask questions. So it was horrible. And sometimes you just got to sit in the awkwardness and be like, mm, well, that sucked. I think autonomy to me, in order to be able to I like the word empowerment a bit, a bit better. I think the first thing you have to do as a coach, if you want to give your athletes some power and if you want them to be autonomous, you have to get to know them. Like you have to know how to communicate with those people in order for them to feel safe and feel comfortable and then for, and for them to have an opinion. So to me, autonomy really comes from creating a culture of safety. I was actually just talking about this last night on, um, we're doing an OVA uh, leadership seminar with some of our younger female athletes and some mentor coaches. I was talking about this in the group and I said, like, the number one thing that I try to achieve in every single gym like well over technical skills is just that people feel safe and not safe as in like, I'm going to beat them up. Like everybody knows I'm not going to beat you up, you know, (laughs) like I'm your coach, but like safe as in like mentally and physically and emotionally safe to be yourself. And that can take a lot of time and that can take a lot of effort but you have to be able to build an environment of safety for athletes to be able to be autonomous. Because I think there's a bit of projection, but I think that a lot of athletes are just looking for signs that it's okay to be themselves. And it's really hard to have an opinion. It's really hard to decide something if you feel like there's the right answer, you know? So if I'm asking you in a serving drill, Josh, how many serves do you want to serve in this drill? And you feel like your coach, me, is I have a right answer and you need to give me the right answer. Then that's not autonomy. That's just creating a bunch of people that think exactly the same way you do. So I think autonomy to me is building a really safe environment. And the way that you do that is getting to know your athletes. The way that you do that is taking a risk and letting the 14-year-olds have 10 minutes for a dynamic warm-up, it going extremely terribly, and then educating them after, like, hey, here's some things you could do and helping to guide them and let them know that that's okay. You know, like, let them know, okay, it's okay, this went terribly. I'm in this with you. So what do you think? What's your idea? What could we have done better next time? What ends, like, Also, allowing them to 
express themselves and what we can do better each practice and like what they want to work on each practice. I think that's autonomy. It might not be right in practice, but for them to have some input on planning, like I want to get better at, at a system setting. Okay. Well, Wednesday of this week, we're going to work on some out of system setting. I want you to come with some goals for that. If you have anything in the drill that you want to change or tweak, or if you want one more rep, that's awesome. Feel free to come talk to me about that in practice on Wednesday. So that's what autonomy kind of looks like to me. Is that specific enough? Yes, no, definitely. And, and I'm curious, what do you do in the situation where the, the athletes going left and you're going right? Or, or what do you do to kind of build <laughs> the education where if you were to ask me in the 10th grade, if I wanted to work on out of system setting, no, I don't. I want to go work on my jump serve and I want to learn how to swing block and all this stuff. But like maybe out of system settings, what's costing us points at tournaments and we want to do well at competition. So how do you build that into your culture where I, I just spoke up and I told you what I want to work on? And you go, well, that's really good. Maybe we'll have an opportunity to do that later. But for the next 30 minutes, we're doing X, Y, Z in this activity. Yeah. So I think that there's a couple things. So one, I think that starts at the beginning. Like I usually lay out values of kind of the way that I am as a coach. And then the team will lay out values of what we want to be, who we want to be and how we want to work. Um, So usually in that value system, there's something like respect or maybe like hard work or purpose or whatever it is. So if there's ever an athlete that's kind of veering off, one way that I try to bring them back is referring them to like the system that the team created and the team values of, hey, we're doing this right now because this is what the, the team needs. Like this is what we need for X, Y, Z. Um, the other part is like, yeah, if you want to just hit 51s and we're working on out of system setting. Part of it is going to be for me of like, okay, well, we looked at our tournament last weekend. Here's the percentage that we hit out of system or here's the percentage that we set above the three meter line and out of system setting. We clearly need to get better at it. Do you want to hit 51s or do you want to win? (laughs) That's not exactly what I would say. But I would say something to the effect of like the reason that we want to work on out of system setting is because we want our team to improve at this skill. There's going to be time to time to work on this, but maybe that's like a 10 minute block at the end of practice. We used to do that actually sometimes out at U of A. I remember like there would be kind of like 20 minutes at the end of practice and it would just be like reps. Like, what do you want? What do you need to work on? What are you as an individual feeling like you need to practice? And so Autonomy doesn't have to be athletes controlling your practice plan because ultimately like you're analyzing and you have that big perspective, right? Like you have the perspective of how is this team going to be successful. Autonomy is allowing your athletes to have some power, some input, and then it's your job as a coach to fulfill that and make them feel valued, right? And so part of the way you can make them feel valued is maybe 15 minutes at the end of practice every single Friday, come with what you want to work on and we're going to work on that. Yeah, this yeah, no, definitely makes sense. And you can look at your resume, you're, you're a top player, you, you're a head coach at Niagara College, you got to be in the assistant uh, coach role with Queens and with golf and going into Canada games and at UVA. What are some ways that you like to bring value to the team as an assistant coach? And what are some ways that you can have your voice also knowing that like the the head coach, I guess, is uh, 
the one driving the bus. Like you still feel heard and valued, but at the same time, like you understand that you have a certain role in the team, right? Because I think we've had a ton of head coaches and we can talk about that in your career on the show, but I'd like to get your perspective of what a good assistant coach does. Oh yeah, that's a really good question. I actually get asked that a lot. Um, I think a good assistant coach, I think this is actually a question on the Canada Games interview way back um, 40 years ago, you know, as we were planning for the 2021 Canada Games. <laughs> um, I think a good assistant coach, ultimately your first job as a coach always is to look out for the safety of the players. So that's number one. And then I think the second part as an assistant coach is being able to believe in and support the head coach. And then the third part is being able to voice your opinion and communicate what you think effectively with the head coach and with players, right? Like my job is not to just do whatever the head coach says. My job is to help the team win, right? My job is to make sure all the athletes are safe. My job is to help the team win and be as successful as humanly possible and make sure all these players improve as much as they can. And so I think I've talked to a few assistant coaches over the years. Um, and sometimes people will call and they have, they're having a hard time with, with their head coach because it is a full relationship with all of the ups and downs and ebbs and flows, right? Like, you're a team. You're not always going to agree on every decision that gets made. But I think it's really important that you believe in the human being that you're coaching with. And I talk about values a lot because I think that they're like central to every decision that you make. And so if I know the values of the head coach that I'm working with, regardless if he or she explicitly lists them, like, you take time to get to know them, you can understand what people's values are, right? I think once you know that, you need to decide, do I believe in this person? Do I believe in the way they make decisions, in the way that they treat people? And can I get behind that and support that? And then also, like, are they going to care about what I think or am I just bopping balls in? It's totally cool to bop balls in. Like, I was there. I was a ball bopper because I didn't know anything. Because I was popping balls and listening and learning. And like, that's where I was for sure. In my first year at U of A, I was just popping balls and being grateful every day that Lori would have me in her gym because that was so cool. And then the next year, I was given more and actually like able to track and stat and add to game plan. And the more that you learn, the more you're able to contribute. It just feels very empowering. And then at Queens, it was really like a co-coaching situation. Brian is a fantastic human and was very, very empowering and really easy to communicate with. And so we didn't always agree on everything. We didn't always agree on everything in training, but we would plan practices together. We would do game plan together. We would make changes in game, like, Everything that we did was discussed. And then ultimately, like, like it's his day, but I never felt like my opinion wasn't valuable. Um, and that's, I think, a bit of a trick of being a head coach 
is how do you show value to your assistant coaches, right? Like how do you really make sure they feel heard, even if you're disagreeing with them too? So I think like that's kind of your main role is have a voice. And also like this, I think is one of the best things I've ever learned. And I told a couple people this. When I was in Alberta, I um, or we worked with this incredible sport uh, psych mental performance coach. Her name is Giselle. She runs a program called the Winter Wheel, and she's brilliant. And she has these three rules, and one of them is you are not that important. And I tell myself that, like, at least once a week, probably more like three times a week. Because at the end of the day, whether you're a head coach or you're an assistant coach, in my, to be honest, very humble opinion, you're not that important, really. Like the athletes are playing. They're the ones performing. They are the ones risking everything out there. They're the ones making mistakes in front of everybody. They're the ones winning or losing and feeling it all. Like they are the performers. They are in the arena, right? And we're just the people trying to help them. So at the end of the day, whether you're a head coach or you're an assistant coach, your job is really to help the athlete and not get in the way. (laughs) I I need to know, what were the other two rules? You mentioned there was three rules. What are the other two rules? Yeah, so uh, one was you're not that important. Uh, Two was nobody's watching. And... Three, I believe, was nobody cares. <laughs> um, and so I just think, like, they sound a bit mean <laughs> when you hear them at first. But when you really think about them, like, it's all about your perspective on life. Like, I think a lot of times athletes and coaches and humans get so distracted by what other people are thinking, right? Like, how often in a game does an athlete make a mistake and then they look up at the stands because people are watching? You know, I remember doing that as an athlete and being like, oh man, my mom or dad's here or this cute boy's watching. Oh no. And like, if I had heard, nobody's watching Natasha. Nobody's actually watching. And also nobody cares because everybody, like people care about you as a person. But also everybody is so involved with their own stuff that they have going on, but it is so much of a bigger deal to you than it is to them. Like that mistake you just made, that's a you thing. Like you are being hard on yourself. The other people around you are not as hard on you as you are. And so that's what the rules are really getting at are like, you're in control of kind of how you think and your perspective on life. And I just think that they're, awesome yeah i'm glad to hear you explain it that way because when you first mentioned i was kind of like oh this seems like uh, i'm not a big believer that if you deflate or try to sidestep pressure that it just goes away where i thought that's initially what the rules are but when i hear you explain it i I think there is a ton of value into that i think sometimes we do overhype situations but um so where would you stand on that though the idea of like pressure and kind of you know the pressure's all on them or you try to ignore it or you try to be light about it like if you're in an OUA final that is pressure and you deserve to be in that moment right so where do you kind of stand uh, on maybe the the devil's advocate side of those quotes and those rules yeah well 
I will preface with you probably need Giselle on to <laughs> actually explain the rules better. I'm really sorry, Giselle, probably butchered it, but there it is. Um, I just got you on a podcast though, so you're welcome. <laughs> uh, the, the other part of it is like, I think that we should live in pressure every day. Like, I don't think the OUA final should just exist on the day that the OUA final happened. Like, I think that we're talking about the OUA final and in my opinion, the U Sport Championship, like every day in practice. Like we used to bring it up um all all the time just to normalize it and like become one with the pressure. Pressure's great. It means things matter, right? If there wasn't pressure, why would we be doing this? Right? Like if we if we didn't feel any pressure then I guess, I guess we would just be kind of like going for a walk all the time. <laughs> it's way more fun, in my opinion, to feel some pressure because it's like, this matters to me. And that's the beautiful part of sport. And what I tell athletes at the beginning of almost every season is like, to win a national championship or to win, you need everything. You have to be all in, like everything you got has to be in the risk with that is if you lose if we lose everything you've got is like shattered because you feel like oh it wasn't enough that sucks i lost i did my absolute best and i lost we lost but and this is just my belief i don't think you can win without that that's the thing that's the risk with sport that's their beautiful part of pressure is it's a privilege to feel it because it means that this sport means something to you. And it means you're in a position where all of the things you've risked are either about to pay off or you're about to be devastated. And that's awesome <laughs> because what a fabulous, fabulous way to live your life. Right. Like there's probably a lot of people that don't feel that much pressure because they're too afraid to feel it. But it's super cool to be in a spot where you can be like, yep, I'm devastated. We, I remember being with, with U of A and losing two years in a row in the U sport uh, championship. And like those women worked so hard to get there both years. And it was, devastating because those women and men on the coaching staff and people involved and invested like everyone was in there was no path in and the feeling after is like oh i i'm sad <laughs> like <laughs> this was our best this is what we worked towards this is what we're trying to do all year but it's incredible to be able to feel that and get another opportunity to feel that over and over again. And I think that's part of the reason to love sport and to love coaching. Wow. Yeah, yeah. that's that's so well said. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. Because when I, I first started doing the podcast with Garrett, Garrett and his whole family, like they're, they're high achievers. And they, he'll talk about if you don't set your goal as high as you possibly can, then that just shows that you don't really believe in yourself and you're like wasting your time. And I was like, he just says things like that. So matter of like, fact, there was kind of like, Oh, but like experiencing being on teams that like, oh, our goal was to make the quarterfinals or we wanted to make playoffs or we wanted to make nationals. 
even if you make nationals and then you lose in the first round, it still sucks. So I don't know why you wouldn't just put it on the wall, put it out there and say, we're here to win and like go for that versus like setting a little bit lower goal. And then you, you don't achieve it. You feel the same or you didn't really go for it. Right. So it, yeah. I, I think you got to be realistic. Like if you're in the OVA and you're playing in, in tier four, maybe you shouldn't be winning a premier medal or something, but you should set a realistic goal that is going for it. And then, like you said, you got to be all in the whole way. Right. Totally. Like, that's the most fun. And it doesn't matter what the goal is. Like, you can set it to be anything. And, like, the goal could be for your 14U kid that's not very good to serve the ball over the net. And, like, the amount of happiness that exists when that kid gets the ball over the net is awesome. It's like winning a national championship. Like, it is a very, very, well, I would assume. (laughs) (laughs) I... (laughs) It's such a cool feeling. And so I just think like, yeah, that's where I want to live life is I'm trying my very best. I might fail, but I'm trying so hard to be as good as I can possibly be for these humans. Man, this is awesome. I say this to everybody because I mean, that's just what the show is. We want to have everybody back on, but you definitely have to come back on because... We didn't really cover it all. Like, so yeah. we, we, we covered a lot, but uh, I've taken up enough of your time for one show, I think. But uh, we'll have to get you back on it. And maybe once the season starts to see uh, the OUA back in action and U Sports back in action. But one thing we've made a tradition on the show is just to close it with a, a funny or unique story. So we've learned about your playing career, your coaching career. But man, volleyball is awesome. And something odd or funny must have happened along the way on your journey here. So I was hoping you could share just one more story to give us a laugh before we let you go. Yeah, absolutely. I was trying my best to uh, think of something for you as wrapping my brain. One of the funniest moments, this might not be that funny to all the other people, but we were at them. When I was younger, we went to Pittsburgh. Like, I think I'm cursed in Pittsburgh. Went to Pittsburgh for this big tournament, and my sister drove me, and we were trying to get to this flipping, I don't even know what it was, like, they're just trying to get to the arena where they set up all this stuff. I think it's where they hosted the ABCA in 2019 or whatever. And we were there for three days, and we must have taken 18 different ways to get to the same venue. Like Pittsburgh has like 400 bridges. It was ridiculous. And I was like, oh, okay, it's painful. Like we were late. We got lost. It's crazy. So then, like years later, 2019, go back for ABCA with all of my with all the coaching colleagues with um, the OVA, which is really, really fun. And I'm like, okay, I've mastered this city. I took the same way to get to the conference every day, nailed it. And <laughs> feeling really good. And then I'm there with a bunch of the OVA coaches and they're all really pumped and they want to go out for dinner. And I'm trying to fit in as a young coach who's just trying to be cool. And so they proposed that we go to a Brazilian steakhouse. And I don't know if you've ever been to a Brazilian steakhouse before, but it's all meat. And I'm a vegetarian most of the time. (laughs) I have been pretty much since I moved to Alberta. And I'll eat meat every now and then, but it's just not often. And so they were like, oh, Tash, you want to come with us to a Brazilian steakhouse? And I was like, Oh, like baby, do you guys want to go somewhere else? Like, do you think that that would be good? And they're like, no, 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 you have to go. We've been to this before. It's so good. And I was like, oh, yeah, okay, sure. Like, just being part of the team, just trying to fit in. And so we go, and I had never been to one. I didn't know what a Brazilian steakhouse was. 
<laughs> so go and it's all meat. They just deliver meat to your table. You put a little red stop, a little green go. So we were there for like three hours eating meat, me and all the guy coaches that were here from Ontario. And I was so sick that I could not oh leave my room for the next like half a day. Couldn't go to the conference in the morning. I was so sick. It was so terrible. And so now I just can't go back to Pittsburgh because every time I go, something ridiculous happens. So I just feel like, no, not meant to be. <laughs> Yeah, and, and for our listeners who have been to a Brazilian steakhouse, they're, they're probably going, oh, no, there's sides. There's not sides. You can get up and get, like, a bowl of potatoes or, like, maybe, like, a little bit of corn or something. But, like, it's meat, and that's what's being delivered to your table the whole time, that, like, you're 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 there to eat, a, like, your body weight in meat, essentially, right? <laughs> that's exactly right. Like, I'm not going to the salad bar. I would get made fun of for the rest of the trip. <laughs> and so I just felt like, okay, I can do this. Like, how bad could it be? I was so sick. It was horrible. <laughs> <laughs> oh that's a good one what a way to end it so thanks yeah, again for for sharing i definitely learned a lot i think yeah coaching has such like a I, I, lack of a better term like a trial and air feel to it where sometimes you just got to try stuff you got to be all in on it you got to like be with the athletes on this journey it's just cool to hear about like you're you have your master's in coaching you're, you're coaching the university level but sometimes stuff's blown up in your face and sometimes it's gone spectacular and i think that's that's good for our listeners is just you, you got to enjoy it and you got to enjoy the struggle sometimes too yeah, I agree. I'm like, no one really knows what they're doing. Like, <laughs> I for sure don't. <laughs> so I try to surround myself with a bunch of people that seem like they might. It's a good play. It's a good play. Well, <laughs> thanks again for coming on. I appreciate it. And hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Awesome. Thank you.